A uh, couple of quick announcements uh, before we jump in. Uh, we are going to uh, kick off the community lunch following church called the Potluck next Sunday. We did originally have it scheduled for this Sunday because two months ago we said, I don't know, let's just make it the third Sunday of every month, which turns out to be Father's Day this month. So we opted to move it back a week. So we did change it in the bulletin, and we did send out emails, but not everybody reads all of their communication. So I apologize for any inconvenience or misunderstanding, but at least you now have your lunch prepared for you today. Uh, starting this Wednesday night, we are going to start a, uh, a new series uh, called 20 Basics Every Christian Should Know. Uh, it, it is a video-based series taught by Wayne Grudem. One of us will be facilitating the discussion uh, and it just looks at kind of the, 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 the basic elements of Christian faith, what we ought to know. My guess is there will be some things that you think you know, and you don't know quite as well as you could. There may be some things that you don't know at all, and you're going to learn some new stuff. Um, it's about a 40-minute video. There'll be time for uh, a, a short discussion afterwards. Um, the first topic is, uh, I think, what is God like? Uh, what is the Bible? What is creation so it looks at some very basic elements of Christian faith. Um, so there's 20 different topics. We're going to break it up into four different five-week sessions. So starting this Wednesday, we'll go five weeks in a row. Then we'll take a break, and then we'll come back and do another five weeks. So I would encourage you to attend. We're going to meet at 6 o'clock. You can bring your food if you want to. We'll gather in the room in there, spend a few minutes eating lunch, and then we'll start the video, have discussion afterwards. The plan is to be out of here by 7.30. Yay! Okay. <clears throat> Uh, and, and I will also mention this morning that the uh, Pazikis have been hit with illness. Um, so they have been home. Four out of the six of them are sick. Uh, Sarah found out yesterday that she has lower double lobe pneumonia. Um, and I did ask if there are any needs at this time, and they said no, but they would let us know. Um, so keep them in your prayer. Um, and Sarah seems to be the hardest hit of them all. Um, so... We'll see how the rest of them fare. Uh, so let's, let's pray before we get started in this week's sermon. <clears throat> Lord, we're grateful for the chance to gather here this morning. Um, we know that we are still dealing, uh, living in a fallen world, and there is still sickness and, and famine and disease. Um, but Lord, we are grateful for the many blessings that we do have for those of us who have reasonably good health, um, who have managed to make it here this morning. Uh, Lord, we pray your blessings on the, on the Pazicki family, um, Lord, that they would continue to recover. If there are needs, that they would uh, make them known, um, and hopefully there will be some of us who reach out and, and check in with them throughout this next week or so anyway. Um, and we're just grateful for this time together to, to, to lean more into your word, to hear about uh, some of the challenges that we all face, no, normal parts of, of living life, especially trying to live a Christian life. There are challenges um, uh, that are set before us that... Um, we share in common, and so we pray for open hearts and, and ears to hear what you have for us this morning. And thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple weeks back, I, I, may have, uh, I may have misspoken just a little bit. I think it was on, Father's, I mean, on Mother's Day um, when I said that we're not going to do uh, specific sermons for Mother's Day and Father's Day this year. Um, we're just going to work our way through Ephesians. That was the plan. That still is the plan. And yet, today's text is aimed squarely at the men on, as it turns out, National Birthing People's 
No, non-birthing people. What do we call this now? It's just Father's Day. It's Father's Day. So it wasn't intentional on our part. We're not calling you out, men, for extra attention or focus or scrutiny. But today's text is. So uh, as you've been following along, as you well know, the last few chapters in Ephesians have forced us to deal with some of the snarlier issues having to do with living life as a believer. What are we called to do? What are we expected to do? We've been reminded that as servants of the Lord, we are called and expected to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, which includes, apparently, things like living with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, bearing with one another in love, not just tolerating the weirdos in our midst. But we are called to love the verbal weirdos in our midst. Um, Because we're all members of the same body. We, We love our body, and we're called to love each other as members of the body. We're told that we are to fulfill our callings. We're told to live up to... Our giftings, and some are going to be apostles and prophets and teachers and child care workers and ushers and, and sound people. And, and we are called to work, to be part of the body, to be actively engaged in the life of the church. We've been told to put off our old self and, and to start to live like the new creations that we are, which means giving up deceitful desires and sensuality and impurities of all kind. We're not supposed to lie or steal. Or don't let the sun go down in our anger. Watch our potty mouths and our corrupting talk. We're to put on the new self, to be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. We're told not to be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. And it's the Spirit that helps us do all of these things. And up to this point, we're, we're following along, right? And most of us are likely thinking, okay, I, there, I see a couple things here I could probably work on. I see a couple of potential areas for improvement, but I get it. If, if I'm going to portray myself as a follower of Christ, then I need to reflect Jesus better. I need to not do the things that he would never do, and I probably ought to do the things that he tells us to do, and it's not going to be easy, and I I know I have things to work on, but but I can do that. These these are manageable. Uh, I'm going to work on getting rid of a few bad habits. I'm going to start a few good habits. And then last week, Al came in and just blew everything up. (laughs) He said, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's just hurtful. (laughs) And then Paul goes on to maddeningly, frustratingly, give a reason as to why this should be the case. He said, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So what what we're being shown here is there's order and structure to a family group, structure. It has to do with with order and structure and intentionality. It's not necessarily according to ability, certainly not according to our desire. And frequently, it seems, women desire to lead in the home, and frequently, men let them. That's not how it's supposed to work. So what you saw last week, what we're going to see again this week, is God's plan for order. There is intent and structure and purpose to the call for wifely submission. And it has nothing to do... With, with human essence or value or ability, but it's about maintaining and living within the relationship structure that the Lord decreed. 
And there are parameters. There are limitations to submission. As Al pointed out last week, a submissive wife should never feel obligated to do anything immoral. She should never be obligated to put up with abuse. Now, admittedly, the church has not handled this well in the past. There have been times, there have been people who have suggested that uh, because wives are obligated to submit, it's their job to take their every other week beating. That's just wrong. But according to the Lord's plan, from the beginning, as it turns out, the best environment for a married couple to grow and prosper and be successful is one where the wife submits to, not obeys, but respects and follows her husband's leading, and where the husband loves his wife, as we're going to see today. And and, and Paul describes the the husband-wife relationship in terms of of a simile. He says, the relationship between the church and Jesus is like the relationship between a wife and her husband. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The church submits to Christ and wives submit to their husbands. We struggle with this because we get hung up and really kind of super emotional about the submit part. Well, on what we think it means, not what it really means. And then that tends to overshadow the whole big picture. So if we play our roles well as husbands, then the relationship between husband and wife becomes kind of symbiotic. It becomes empowering. It becomes this beautiful thing that represents Christ and the church. It is not oppressive, it is not authoritarian, and it is not patriarchal. I mean, if you think about it, we're given this picture of husband and wife and Christ and church. Is Christ a despot? Is he tyrannical towards the church? Does Christ abuse the church? Of course not. And this is the North Star that Paul continually points to for husbands. Where's my clicker? Huh. All right, slide changer. Not sure what happened to it. If I just wiggle my nose like that. That's not the right one. We've had issues this morning. Did we mention that? Uh, Psalm uh, verse 23 says, The husband is the head of the wife. Thank you. Even as Christ is the head of the church. So Paul starts this next section where we're going to pick up today, and this is aimed at the husbands. And it is similar advice. It's a similar kind of command, just aimed at husbands rather than wives. Verses 25 to 30. Yes. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, there is a lot that can be said. There's a lot that has been said. There's a lot that's been written over the millennia about the husband-wife relationship especially about the differences between husbands and wives. 
For example, perhaps you've read these classics, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Not your cup of tea? Men are like waffles, women are like spaghetti. Conventional wisdom has always held that men and women are different. Equal in essence, equal in value, but we were designed differently so as to function differently, which requires different standard equipment. (laughs) This should not be controversial for us to say, and yet it is. We are told with increasing ferocity that we are all the same. There is no difference between men and women. We're all the same. And yet, if you pay attention, there are these little cultural giveaways. We're all the same. We're all exactly the same. But these people over here, let's call them birthing people. Because it turns out they can do things that this group of people can't do. We're identical, but they're designed quite a bit differently. It is, of course, nonsensical. And for centuries now, we've all known better. Men and women are different. We are created equal in value, but we are different as to function. This is clearly the point Paul is trying to make here as he gives different instructions to men than he does to women. Because he doesn't just say, all right, married people, let me just lay this out for you. If you just mutually submit to each other, then you will live happily ever after. He commands wives to submit, in essence, to respect their husband, and he commands husbands to love their wives two different kinds of commands to two different kinds of people. And the first thing we probably should notice here is that the instruction given to men, the instruction given to husbands, is three times as long as the instructions given to wives. (laughs) Three verses aimed at wives and submission, nine verses aimed at husbands. And three times in those nine verses, he has to say, husbands love your wives. We are idiots. (laughs) But we could start to get the impression that the weight or the the onus of responsibility in a marriage lands squarely on the husband. I mean, it seems like we have a bit more to do. We have a bit more to be responsible for. And frankly, this is kind of the biblical pattern. If you think back to Eve in the garden and she's listening to the serpent, she believed his lie and she ate the fruit. Who got the blame? her husband. He was there with her. It was his job to guide her and protect her and lead her. And when she failed, he got the blame for not doing his job. It's also worth noting, I think, that as Paul was writing this, in its time, this opening line here, for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, it was extremely countercultural. Women were, to some degree, second-class citizens. They were, older men were marrying women as young as 13, 14, 15 years of age. They were considered something like property. And Paul takes this cultural context and he turns it completely on his head and he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. They're not your servants. They are your co-heirs in the kingdom. Now, there are a lot of words that are translated as love in the Bible, but this one, husband, love your wives, this is kind of the big one. This is that agape love word. This is the one we most often associate with unconditional love. So to drive the point home, Paul says, Husbands, agape your wives as Christ agape the church. 
Now, the last few chapters, we've been talking about how to live as members of the church, members of the body. And Paul keeps reminding us that we can't go on living like the Gentiles live and still claim to be Jesus' followers. There should be something about how we live that marks us as different, as set apart. If we're going to claim to be Jesus' followers, his expectations for how we live are different. It should compel us to live differently. The salvation that's afforded to us, brought about by the Holy Spirit, empowers us to be different. But Paul has to keep reminding us men because we change slowly sometimes. We, we fail to live up to our calling on occasion. We, we fail in our walk of worthiness sometimes, often. And yet Christ loves us anyway. In spite of us, he doesn't withhold the Spirit from us. He doesn't berate us every time we fail. In fact, Christ, through the Spirit, does everything in his power to steer us and guide us in the right direction. He loves us anyway. He died for us. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So what Paul is describing here is a sacrificial, selfless kind of love from husbands. That's, that's our attitude. That's supposed to be our attitude towards our wives. That kind of love is not abusive. It's not demanding. It's not domineering. It's not regal or royal in bearing, but it's humble and loving. So husbands, we, we, we need not miss this point. The, the big picture here is if, if we want to be seen as head of the household, if we want our wives to respect us as leaders, then we have to function as head of the household after the pattern of Jesus. We're supposed to lead in a reasonable manner, to love our wives with the agape kind of love, and then we work to earn their submission, to earn their respect, not demand it. This is an annoying truth for us all. It turns out that headship is not a power position of unsurpassed authority. It is a serious and meaningful responsibility based on sacrificial love. Paul goes on to explain that in this process of loving and self-sacrificing for our wives, something truly remarkable begins to happen. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Paul's laying out the foundation here for our sacrificial love. As Christ died for the church, husbands are to give themselves up for their wives, we're to love our wives sacrificially, and then Paul provides for us a glimpse here of the significance, the, the impact of this kind of love. And so in order for husbands to understand the impact of this sacrificial love on their wives as Christ loved the church, Paul describes what happens to the church when it is sacrificially loved by Christ. Remember, the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. So Paul paints this picture for us here. He says that in the case of Christ, he loves the bride, he loves the church sacrificially, he died for the church, and as a result... Through Jesus' death, we can be sanctified. We can be free from sin. One day, we're going to be 
standing before an almighty God, God the Father, our creator, we're going to stand and be presented to God the Father in all of our bridal splendor as the bride of Christ. We will have been made perfect by the blood of the Lamb. We'll be without the, the, the stain of sin. We'll be without the wrinkle of time. We'll be without the stench of death. Standing before our Maker in our new bodies, holy and blameless. As the church, we're going to be an eternally beautiful bride. That's the picture Paul is laying out for us here. Paul is showing the effect of a strong and perfect unconditional love. So Jesus' sacrificial love for the church is uplifting and encouraging and perfecting. So husbands, love your wives like that. It's that easy. Now, I'm sure it goes without saying, but as you know, I'm going to say it anyway. As the husband of my wife, I cannot cleanse her from sin. I cannot make her holy or blameless. But I can, and I should, try to model Jesus' agape-type love, his unconditional love, because it has a liberating effect on her. She will flourish spiritually and emotionally and physically as a result of my sacrificial love. And even through my admittedly imperfect love, and even through my less-than-perfect headship, Somehow she can see through me to the perfected model of Christ. And she can see perfect love and perfect headship. So really, I'm kind of a functioning placeholder. I'm kind of a directional arrow to point her to Christ, the ultimate perfecter. So I tried to get her to see Christ through me by being the husband I'm called to be. Or I can become a major roadblock in that process. I can be a dirty, grimy window that impacts her relationship with Christ. And this is the model the Lord has established. Even though I am not a perfect giver of unconditional love, by trying to emulate Christ's love for the church, I am far better than I would be otherwise. And my wife is far better off as a consequence of that. Now, our wives are responsible and and, and will be held accountable for their own spiritual growth, but husbands will be held accountable for how we assisted or hindered that growth. So properly understood, I think my headship is not my right to assert supreme authority and govern like a king from a throne. Headship is my responsibility to love and lead as Christ loves and leads. It's my responsibility to love her in a way that enables her to feel loved and protected. To make it easier for her to do her part, submit and respect. Now, frankly, I think this is more powerful and more frightening than most of us want to realize. As men, just consider this idea that someday we're going to stand again before Almighty God and present our bride, and we're going to have to review what kind of job we did. How we asserted our headship. Did we, did we oppose, impose a dictatorship? Or did we do everything possible? Well, lots of things possible to show love. 
Did we try to lead our wives towards salvation, towards sanctification, towards holiness? Did we attend church together? Did we try to raise our kids to love Jesus? Did we sacrifice our own desires at times to be with our families? Are we loving our our wives in the way that they understand it and receive it? This is one of those areas where these differences kind of kick in. Sometimes we feel like, well, she should know I love her because. But is she interpreting it that way? Now, honestly, this whole thought process has kept me up a night or two over the years. It is profound. How do we demonstrate love? How do we sacrificially demonstrate love? Uh, A lot of you are probably familiar with Gary Chapman's book called The Five Love Languages. He suggests that these are the five most common ways that people receive or understand love. And, of course, it varies from person to person and from marriage to marriage, and that's why there's, there's five of them. Um, but he talks about touch and words of affection and gifts and time and actions. Now, most of these you're probably not surprised to see. But since we're talking specifically to husbands today and the idea of sacrificial love, I'm going to highlight just one of these things. In my opinion, based on my observation, being a husband for quite some time now, it is my opinion that time is probably the most overlooked thing on this list. In our culture, we become fairly consumed with busyness. Now, hopefully, good, responsible Christian men are working hard to provide for their families. It's what we're called to do. But then we're told, we're trained, we're enculturated to believe that as a result of all that hard work, we've earned the right for a little me time. So time away from work can become consumed with things other than wife and family. We have all kinds of diversions and distractions. We golf and hunt and fish and train for triathlons and play single-shooter video games down in the basement. We have poker nights, whatever. We have all kinds of things we can come up with all kinds of other time-consuming, solitary pursuits which limit our time and exposure and ultimately our effectiveness, the impact we have on our families. Now, none of those things are wrong. None of those things are bad. But when wives are asked what they most want from their husbands, time is often near the top of the list. Just the physical presence of their spouse. And if Christ is our model, then we ought to remember He spent three years, day in and day out, with his closest disciples. They benefited from his time. They watched how he lived. They heard him speak. They they got lessons. They they learned about life. They learned about Christianity. All of this they learned from that time spent with Christ. And he chose not to skip the cross because he had a tea time. Buying a gift is not a substitute for time. So we need to listen to our wives' definition of love and make sure we understand what's important to them. That's our responsibility. Paul makes it clear that when husbands attempt to function, when when we try to, to love and to lead as we ought to, there is something transformative that happens in this process. When we attempt to love our wives sacrificially, the power of the Spirit, the the overflow of Christ's love for the church permeates the relationship, and we end up with a sanctifying... 
kind of got these out of order somehow. Anyway, we end up with a sanctifying love. Our sacrificial love has a sanctifying effect. I become a better man and husband as a result of my wife's love and respect for me. She becomes a better woman and a better wife as a result of my sacrificial love for her. Somehow we become more united. We become more sanctified, which just means set apart. We become more sanctified together. Now, you know us reasonably well. Neither of us are going to be accused of being the perfect spouse, but she is obviously much, much closer than I am. But we become more perfect for each other as we go on, as we try to practice these things. So when husbands practice sacrificial love towards their wives, we don't save them from sin. They're not somehow baptized by our love. There are all kinds of weird things that have come out of these verses over the years. We don't have control over whether or not our wives enter heaven. Other weird interpretations that people have come up with. But husbands are expected to love their wives in a way that helps them see Christ, not hinders their faith. That's the big point being made in these verses. Sacrificial love assists in our sanctification, and that is both remarkable and frightening. Challenging. And because Paul understands that men are not always that smart, and because Paul knows that we need to hear it a third time, he goes on to say, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So I, I think this is just kind of a more practical way of saying what Paul has said previously. Husbands should love as Christ loved the church. That sacrificial love does, has a sanctifying effect on both husband and wife. So that's all spiritual and theological and deep. And it helps us attain the right mindset to give us the right motivation for being good husbands. And then this section, I think, is just it's a little more practical in nature. Husbands love their wives. It ought to be sacrificial. It ought to be sanctifying. And it ought to be satisfying. So Paul starts to imply here this one flesh idea, which he makes explicit in the next verse or two. And he just says, as a husband, I mean, as a man, we're aware of our own needs. We're aware of our own desires. But we should also try to be aware of our, of our, our wife's needs and desires. Sacrificial love calls us to be more in tune with her. And virtually any husband will tell you, and virtually every wife will concur, this is not always our strong suit. That's why Paul has to spell it out for us here. You need to try to understand your wife as well as you understand you. And, and kind of in a more practical kind of sense. I mean, it is generally true. Not in every case, but it's generally true that women tend to be more emotionally in tune and connected, more emotionally aware than men are. I was just told yesterday, I don't have feelings. And somehow, that did not hurt my feelings. This is just part of how we are created and gifted. We're, we're, we're just different. There's nothing wrong with that. But as men, we're not always equipped to deal with the emotional part appropriately, if at all. 
I mean, I, I think more often than not, we're tuned in just enough. We're just smart enough to know that when our wives are kind of being cool towards us, we should be thinking. We might even want to ask at some point, what's wrong? Have I done something to offend again today? <clears throat> and we're just smart enough, we're just tuned in enough to know that when she says, nothing's wrong, that does not mean that nothing's wrong. And here we need to tread carefully. I mean, we can't quite pinpoint the problem, but we're generally aware that there is one. So we're not oblivious to the whole concept of emotions. Not only do we not know that we did something specifically wrong, sometimes we don't even understand that there's anything generally wrong until it is somehow revealed to us. <laughs> because I guarantee you that most husbands will have at least thought at one time or another, if not outright stated, well, I'm not a mind reader. Which really means I'm not an emotion understander either. I really don't know what you want or expect or need from me here. You're going to have to tell me if you want me to know what the problem is. And the truth probably is that we have been told. <laughs> or we've been given hints. Or we've been given really big clues. Because sometimes we're not great listeners either. Or note readers. Or list followers. And yet, it's our responsibility to love our wives as we love ourselves. To try to figure them out. So we need to work at knowing her. We need to work at knowing her like we know us. We need to work at listening and responding appropriately, even asking relevant questions at the right time and not just nodding and grunting as though we're following every word. It's our job to know our wives as ourselves. 1 Peter 3.7 says we are to live with our wives in an understanding way. I always take pains to point out here to men that it doesn't say, men, understand your wives. It says we are to live with their wives in an understanding way. We have to at least make an effort. And this goes back to the whole men and women are different thing. We are created differently. We function differently. But it says that we are obligated to make an effort to understand, to know our wives as well as we know ourselves. And this tends to be a pretty broad, open-ended kind of statement. There's lots of stuff we're responsible to try to understand. It means more than knowing, for example, which way she prefers the toilet paper to hang over the little roller thing. It means more than knowing which love language she prefers or what her favorite flower is. I mean, those are all important things to know. But we're, what we're called to practice, what we're called to strive for is wisdom, the application, how, how we deal with that kind of information, how we put that information into practice. Those little practical things enhance our lives together. Just as we cherish and nourish our own bodies, we know what is good for us and what is bad. We know when we're down and we know when we're up and we know how to deal with those things for ourselves. We need to understand those things about her too. 
I was just thinking about this the other day. We were ordering food from the Thai place, and I had to go to a meeting, and Lenny said, I'm going to order food, and I said, okay, you know what I like, order my food. And on my way to the meeting, I thought, if she had said to me, you know what I like, Now, fortunately, her list of likes is quite a bit more extensive than my list of likes, so I probably would have been okay, but I'd have had to think about it for a minute. We know all those things, and we put them into practice, and as Peter says, when you live with your wife in an understanding way, you show honor to her. We're showing honor to our wives. So the outcome of this kind of attention, this, the outcome of us understanding our wives, develops into a deep satisfaction in the relationship. And that applies to the spiritual part of our relationship, as we've already discussed, but it speaks more to practical things. Her physical needs and her emotional needs is, uh, is understanding our wives and understanding that what impacts and affects her is going to impact and affect us as well. It's in our best interest to live with our wives in an understanding way. You notice that Paul doesn't lay out here a list of honeydews for men. All right, husband, if you do these seven things, life will be grand. All right, husband, just do these things and life will be swell. It doesn't work that way because we're all different. Our relationships are all different. We all know couples of whom we have said, wow, they just seem so different, and yet somehow they seem to make that work. Right? Or, or, or we, we've seen couples where we think, wow, they are both so odd. How does that even work? If you have not said that at one time, you're one of those couples. Just so. <clears throat> so Paul doesn't give us just an easy checklist for us all to follow. It's not always going to be the same. Paul's goal here is to help wives and husbands develop the right attitude. The right foundation upon which they can figure out the application in their own marriage, in their own relationship. It's going to look a little bit different. So Paul's giving us these guiding principles to help us navigate the often prickly and difficult union of two very different people. He's helping us develop an attitude of love and respect based on a shared mutual commitment. We've made this vow, and this is foundational, and it should be unchanging. In fact, Paul gives us just at the end here this glimpse of how important this is and how well-established this is, how foundational it is. He goes on to say, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So you notice it starts off with quotation marks here. Paul's making this point about God's ordained family structure, and he goes back to the beginning. This is from Genesis 2. In the beginning, from the beginning, God ordained this is how a marriage should function. Two people, specifically, one man, one woman. They leave their families and they become joined together as if they are one flesh. But notice, it says, the man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. Once again, it seems that men are ultimately the party most responsible for the success or failure of the marriage union. If we want the headship, we got to be responsible. I have told couples in counseling situations before, before we even start, I will say something like, just so you know, I'm going to assume from the beginning that 51% of this problem is the husband's fault. 
I don't even know what the problem is yet. It, this seems to be the way, the way the scales are balanced according to Scripture. Now, of course, that doesn't always turn out to be the case. Women, you're not perfect either. I know. Calm down. The point is that the price of headship is accountability. The price of headship is responsibility. The, the submission or respect that we all desire from our wives has to be earned, not demanded. So if being accountable and being responsible for the care and welfare and well-being of your wife isn't enough to keep you up at night as followers of Christ, according to this, the relationship between a husband and wife is somehow closely, inextricably linked to Christ and the church. Paul says it's actually kind of a mystery how this works. It may not be apparent. It may not be obvious to all of us. But it turns out that our marriages as followers of Christ, how believing husbands love their wives and how believing wives submit to their husband, this somehow is a, it's a, it's a reflection of, it's a copy to some degree of the relationship between Christ and the church. So our marriages as believers, our relationship is itself a testimony of Christ's love for the church. So husbands, can we claim to be a believer and treat our wives as doormats? And it doesn't matter how civic-minded you are. It doesn't matter how generous you may be for all your charitable giving. If you do all of those great things and treat your wife like a second-class citizen rather than a a co-heir of the kingdom, all your good deeds before men are going to be overshadowed by your treatment of the one you claim to love. It reflects poorly on you. More importantly, it reflects poorly on Christ and the church. This is no small issue. Back in the first Peter verse, when we fail as husbands, when we fail to love, when we fail to try to understand our wives, they're impacted, but so are we. When we fail to give honor to our wives, when we fail to love our wives, the Lord doesn't want to hear the prayer of men who dishonor their wives. If we disparage and, and we mistreat our co-heirs, the wives that the Lord gave us, the, the, the helpers, the life companions that we're blessed with, when we become a hindrance to their spiritual life and growth, then our spiritual life is hindered and damaged. It turns out that our marriage matters much more than we may even think from time to time, much more than we think about on a regular basis. Your marriage matters. And it means more than just the two of you. In some mysterious, interesting way, people are making determinations about Christ's love for his church based on how husbands love their wives. It's why we tend to, as Christians, value marriage so highly. It's why we should take it seriously. It's why we should work at it. Are are we walking in a manner worthy of our calling? Does our marriage relationship reflect our calling? And men, husbands, I want to say it starts with you. When we agape our wives as Christ agape the church, then she is free to submit. She is free to respect us. You know, I've come to really appreciate over the years this uh, uh, Dr. Egg... Egerich's, Dr. E's book on, uh, called Love and Respect. And I think he's kind of distilled the essence of biblical teaching on marriage, and, and he's kind of got it down in, into these two points. 
You know, if you're following the big biblical pattern, the husband loving his wife and the wife respecting her husband, and these are regardless of what the other one does, we're each called to do our part of it, but we end up in this rewarded, I would say, blessed biblical kind of relationship. When we get over here, when the husband is not loving his wife appropriately, when the wife is not respecting her husband appropriately, you all know it's the crazy cycle. If you haven't been in this situation, you know people who have been in this situation. This is the ideal. This is what we're called to. When we follow the Lord's prescription for the family structure, when wives are active, husbands are actively and intentionally loving their wives sacrificially, when wives are actively and intentionally respecting their husbands, they dwell in this rewarded, blessed area. When the love and the res- or, or respect breaks down, the crazy begins. Part of walking in a manner worthy of our calling is to follow the biblical model for marriage. And husbands, I, I, I believe the larger portion of that load falls on you. Not only does that impact your own life with your decisions, but you're going to impact your wife and your kids. Are you modeling Christ's love for the church? And the answer is, we could all do better. So Paul's teaching here is, is not to beat us down. His, his teaching here is intended to call us up. Here's your goal. Aim a little higher. He's trying to encourage, encourage us and equip us to be better. And remember, this is a lifetime pursuit. I was pretty sure when I got married at 26, by 30, I'd have it all figured out. And apparently it doesn't happen by 57 either. Al? Al? But you will start to figure it out a little more at a time. You will if you keep your nose down and (laughs) your ears open. and You will get better over time. And you will see these things come into play. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for these uh, life-affirming but challenging texts. Lord, I pray that we, uh, through these last two weeks, especially on wives and husbands, that um, that we have a, a renewed commitment to following the, the biblical model here. Lord, that we, we don't listen to um, the sometimes crazy uh, ideas that come from our culture, Lord, and, and we try to rest squarely on what your word commands. There, it, it is no coincidence that our culture works so hard against marriage and against couples. Because when it works... When we try to follow it according to your word, it, it, is, it is a remarkable thing. And it is reflective of your love for the church. So, Lord, may, may, may we all, husbands and wives, all have a new understanding, a new sense of importance to how this is supposed to play out in our lives. May we, may we leave here with a renewed commitment um, to, to try to be a little better. It's not that we're doing it poorly, but we could all be doing it better. And Lord, I, I pray that you just keep continue to encourage us, that your spirit continues to guide us and lead us. Uh, and that husbands, especially as we are called to guide and lead and protect our wives, we get better at doing that also. We're just grateful for the, your, your, your generous and amazing love that un- undergirds this whole structure. This whole plan is based on your love for us and how you have, uh, from the beginning, committed to redeeming us and helping us be, become more Christ-like. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>